the biggest mistake that we make in general is to separate the supernatural order and the natural order, the spiritual and the material. They interpenetrate each other constantly. And the basis for that is the incarnation itself. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The infinite divine reality assumes human flesh. That's one of the, we've lost the ability to see those things. And we need to, because that's how Satan trips us up. That's how he tricks us. That's how we fall. We don't see his hand at work. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Hi, thanks for tuning in to another video on Armor of God. To start this video, I'd like to share something that was said by Father John Sada that would hopefully help you to reflect on the ongoing battles that are taking place at the moment. You know, in the Gospels, if you read them very carefully, you'll find that the entire Gospel from beginning to end, all four Gospels, is an ongoing battle between Christ and Satan. Satan does not know who Jesus really is. I mean, we might think that, you know, with hindsight, but Satan doesn't. He's testing him all the way through. All right. No one, even the Jew, no one there will come to the realization that Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity until the resurrection, until Easter Sunday. That's when it becomes obvious to everybody. Up to that point, no. When you say, well, you know, they call him Son of God and you know, all that kind of stuff. But no, see, that title doesn't mean the same thing to them as it means to us today. Back there, the Son of God was a title that went, anybody who was anointed, so it could have been the um, high priest, it could have been a prophet, it could have been the king, they were all called sons of God, right? And the only title Jesus uses for himself is the title Son of Man. And he refers to his fullness of humanity that he has taken upon himself. Now, Satan probably suspected that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christus. And again, we have to understand, the Messiah for the Jews was essentially going to be a political ruler who was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And so Satan suspects that Jesus is the Messiah, and he wants to thwart God's plan. And so one of the things that Satan wants to do is to kill Jesus. And there are actually seven different times in the Gospels where Satan attempts to take the life of Christ. This video would be the longest compilation I've made so far, and I tried to include as many useful clips as I can that will hopefully help you in your own spiritual warfare. But before that, let me say thank you to each one of you for taking the time to be here with us, for your continuous support and prayer, and if it isn't too much of a hassle, please share this video on your social media so that we can let more people know about this. Now buckle up and let's continue with the video. To continue the part where Father Sada said about the devil's attempt to kill Jesus, here's one example that he cited from scripture. The one that people would not guess is the story of Jesus crossing the lake with the apostles in the boat and he falls asleep in the boat in the stern of the ship. And the huge storm blows up, the wind and the waves and the disciples are freaking out and they go, and Jesus, wake up, wake up, can't, you know, we're going to die here, you know, don't you care? I, you know, I always kind of got a laugh out of it, wondering how Jesus could have been sound asleep in the midst of this huge storm, you know. Either he was really, really tired, or he was trying to teach them a lesson. But anyway, it says, then Jesus stood up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. That word that we translate into English as rebuke, is actually an exorcism. That storm was not an ordinary storm. It was demonic. It was an attempt by Satan to kill Jesus. And this happens all the time. The unfortunate thing is that in our modern scientific age, you know, follow the science, we've lost the ability to see the supernatural elements that permeate all throughout our lives, both bad and good. He's interfering. 
So anyway, this is what we deal with. And we have to come to realize that this is the way Satan works. This is the world within which we live. I've released a video before covering Monsignor Stephen Rossetti's talk on the Freemasons, and I'm glad that Father John Stada also talks about people's involvement with Freemasonry. You know, people will they, they step into realms, but they don't quite realize what they're getting into. So one of the, um, the big, big problems that we encounter these days uh, are the um, involvement of people in Freemasonry. All right. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, no matter how hard they try. The Masonic orders are demonic, pure and simple. All right. There's no way you can explain it away. People say, well, oh, you know, you can, be, you can still be a good Catholic and be going to the Masons. No, you can't. It's a contradiction in terms. And you only discover what the Masons are really about when you get higher up in the hierarchy, up the, the grades or whatever it is. And this is one of the cases that I had to go outside the diocese for, all right, in order to um, deal with a particular case of a man who was having all kinds of attacks, manifestations, and we were able to pinpoint it down to um, Masonic curses. In fact, you know, we actually feel the attacks, sometimes actually physically. You know, I'll actually, um, sometimes we'll have, um, people will send me photographs of scratches on their arms or different things that, that happen, all right? They're actual physical manifestations of demonic attacks. And they do happen. But almost in every single case that I've ever encountered, you have to always ask yourself, you know, well, what were you doing? See, people don't seem to realize that, you know, they open the door to the demonic. And just like the, the, the guy who was in the Masons, you know, we do things, we engage in certain behaviors or so activities where we open the door to the demonic. And then we wonder why we have these problems. You know, the, the one I just encountered this again the other day for the first time, one of our priests uh, contacted me about a lady in his parish. And he said in this particular case, um, the woman had her husband died in their home, right? And um, now they've been experiencing all kinds of manifestations. So for example, things falling off the wall, things that disappear and show up later on, you know, all kinds of things. By the way, that guy about the, ma the Masons, the funny thing we had about that one was, we told them they had to gather up all of the Masonic things that he had in the house, and they had to get rid of them, they had to be burned, they had to be destroyed. Um, but what happened was, there was a ring, a Masonic ring, that disappeared, right? They could not find, no matter what we did, no matter how they, how, they tore the house apart, the ring disappeared. They could not find it. After we did those prayers of renunciation, the ring suddenly showed up on the table and they were able to destroy it. So that's the way the devil works, right? And so in this particular case, this particular lady, you know, these manifestations were happening and a friend of her, hers told her that she should get a speak box and maybe talk to her husband and see what was going on. A speak box. <laughs> if you haven't heard of them, okay, good. <laughs> uh, because uh, they're very dangerous. Um, you used to, I haven't checked lately, but you used to be able to buy them on Amazon.com. Speak box is something almost like a, a cell phone, and it's wired in such a way that you can um, supposedly talk to the dead. So people get these, right? And they want to talk to their deceased loved ones. And guess what? It works. The only problem is that that's not the way it works. See, God doesn't allow the dead to engage in casual conversations with the living. All throughout the course of history, we know that the dead only communicate with the living when they're asking for prayer to be free from purgatory. Other than that, they don't engage in casual conversation. Before we get on with the following clip, there's something that I'd like to include in this video about what Pope Benedict said regarding the spiritual struggle against the enslaving powers. Based on the very clear witness of Scripture, read in the light of tradition, the Church has always believed in the existence of angels, spiritual creatures, inferior to God, but superior to men. It is a truth of faith, explicitly defined by at least two ecumenical councils. 
Pope Benedict wrote in 1981 regarding the spiritual struggle against the enslaving powers. The spiritual struggle against the enslaving powers and the exorcism of a demon-deluded world belongs inseparably to the spiritual path of Jesus and to the center of his mission and his disciples' mission. The figure of Jesus, his spiritual physiognomy does not change, whether the sun rotates around the earth, whether the earth around the sun, whether the world has formed by evolution or not, but it changes decisively if we remove the struggle with the tried power of the demon kingdom. Anyway, now there's something that Father John Shada regarding resisting temptation, and I'm sure most of you never see this one coming. But after I've listened to it over and over again, it does make sense in the end. The other thing we have to be very, very careful of, and I run into this all the time, uh, dealing with, especially with the teenage boys at the academy up there where I'm at, you know, don't confuse temptations and sins. A temptation is not a sin. A temptation only becomes a sin when I give in to the temptation right? Temptations are part of us. So how do I, you know, and, and of course the big thing today, <laughs> the whole culture within which we live today, you know, is permeated with sex, you know, and every little thing is, is sexual, all right? We get bombarded with it from all directions, all right? And so, you know, uh, traditional Catholics sometimes tend to think that, well, you have to fight these temptations. And I say to them, that's the worst thing you can do. And people say, what? What's the matter with you? I said, no. The worst thing you can do for this reason, you're fighting them, you're paying attention to them. The more attention you pay to them, the stronger they get. You get yourself into a vicious circle. The way you overcome sexual temptations is to change your mind. A different focus, a different point of attention. St. Teresa of Avila had a great devotion to the scourging at the pillar. Right? And so whenever there would be a difficulty, a problem, whatever, uh, she would always bring that to mind. She would always walk around imagining, she says this in her writings, a little Jesus living in her heart. Imagine if we could do that. If we could do that all throughout the course of our day. Imagine a tiny Jesus living inside your heart. Well, he is. I mean, that's no image, it's a truth, it's a reality. But if we kept our focus there, we wouldn't even notice most of the temptations that the devil would try to throw at us. There are some stories shared by Father Sada that truly highlights the problem with the world at the moment. Therefore, I think it's completely understandable why requests for exorcisms are on the rise. The identity of the exorcist was one of the most closely guarded secrets in the church. You know, only the bishop and the exorcist knew who he was, all right? Uh, and again, if the cases were relatively rare, you didn't need to call on him very often. Um, but today, it's, it's out in the open, okay? It's all the exorcists. I mean, again, we meet worldwide. We meet all the, all the place all the time. Um, and one of the reasons is because we say to people, look, you know, evil is so rampant in the world today, people have to know where to turn to get the help they need. And so that's why we have to be out in the open because the demonic is out in the open. And I'll be sharing two stories highlighted by Father Sada during this lecture. The first is regarding the undertaker who abused corpses. Um, I had a phone call that, and one of here in the diocese, there was a, a gentleman who was an undertaker who had been arrested for abuse of corpses in his funeral home. It was not sexual of any kind, but it was just neglect, you know corpses that were not embalmed or not properly embalmed, just all kinds of really bad things. And um, he was arrested for it, and he actually spent time in prison. So another family purchased the property, the funeral home, but this family um, was a good Catholic family, and so wanted to know, you know, should we do something, you know, before we actually start to use the facility? And I said, absolutely. So I went down, and I did a minor exorcism of the place. And then I suggested to the pastor of that parish that he should come sometime and celebrate a mass there in the building, all right, in reparation for all the souls who may have been, you know, um, abused in a certain way um, because of the things that, that happened to their bodies. And so I know that's what, that's what they're going to be doing. Um, so that's the, one of the ways in which you follow through on these particular kinds of cases. 
And have you read the news before about people breaking into churches and stole the tabernacle? For those of you who aren't quite familiar with what the tabernacle is, it is a liturgical furnishing used to house the Eucharist outside of Mass. This provides a location where the Eucharist can be kept for the adoration of the faithful and for later use such distribution to the sick. And the tabernacle also helps prevent the profanation of the Eucharist. Anyway, here's the part where Father Sada shared about the tabernacle being stolen and why. But um, a church was broken into and the tabernacle was stolen. The tabernacle had been bolted onto the surface wherever it was. They it must have taken quite some effort to unbolt this and they stole the entire tabernacle with the Blessed Sacrament in it. Why do you think they would do that? The occult, black masses, they're real. They do happen more often than we would like to believe. And so, there, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing that is taking place where people become possessed. For those of us who want to be closer to God, perhaps it's quite difficult to imagine why people willingly choose to live in rejection of God. I think after listening to what Father Carlos Martin said here, we'll provide a better explanation to this notion. Um, I, I've never kept formal statistics, but, but I've, I've been very aware of the general statistic as to how many people who come to me uh, and, and who really don't desire liberation. And that is six out of 10 people. Six out of 10 people who come looking for an exorcist really don't want a, a, an exorcist. What they want is some problem eliminated out of their life, but they're not ready to turn their life over to Christ. Uh, so I'm thinking of one person in particular, she had made a, a, a pact with the devil to receive uh, preternatural powers as a medium, as a clairvoyant. And she would use these powers in necromancy and calling forth the dead and telling people's fortune and so forth. She earned a living out of this and she, she gained a great power. She was tantalized by the kinds of things she could see in people and anticipate within them. And that really exhilarated her. Well, you know, the devil at, at a certain point, you know, he makes his deals, but there's always more than what you bargained for. And so he came to collect and he came uh, putting, uh, well, causing her health to deteriorate and causing just wild phenomena to happen inside her home such that she couldn't sleep. Well, she came to me as an exorcist, hey, you know, get the devil out of, out of my life, but I only want him out in terms of the, the noise that, that, that he's causing in my home and any way that he's attached to my health. But sure as heck, don't, you know, I'm not going to renounce the powers that I got to be a medium clairvoyant and so forth. Well, it doesn't work like this. If you're in the devil's employ or vice versa, if he's in your employ, then you've chosen him as your Lord. And that, that's who you got. So you, you can only receive the benefits of Jesus Christ if you choose to walk with Christ. If you walk with Christ, then you're protected by him. If you choose not to walk with him, then you're not. And so exorcism is very much about severing one relationship, a toxic relationship, and forging another one, a wholesome one with Christ. It is worth mentioning that, according to Christian spirituality, the devil is intelligent but not wise, since he is not intellectually obsessed in the full sense of the word, that is, he does not make a commitment to the contemplation of truth, but only to the degradation of Christian witness. Despite the full mercy of the most holy creator, the devil's will is obstinate and evil, and therefore there is no repentance for him. The devil's action is so strong against man, for it is grounded in the pride of the demon, amalgamated with the power and greatness preserved by the fallen angels. The devil has become the created being who most manifests and feeds a nefarious hatred toward God. He puts all his intelligence, his strength, and his power in this anger to tell the Lord, and tempts man to push him to do evil. He wants to take us from God. The goal of the devil is to make man depart from his greater purpose and primordial vocation, effective union with God. However, still many people seek to mitigate and even disregard demonic action on men. Certainly, the dangers of modernity favor the devil's works, 
and the expansion of his bookie reign. There, there's always, you're, when you're making, when you're dealing with the devil, there's always part of the deal that you don't anticipate. You're always getting a Trojan horse. You're getting more than what you anticipated. And that more is detrimental. It's not beneficial. So that's one thing. Secondly, there's always a, an explicit decision or, or a, 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 a definite agreement um, that someone has to make with the devil in order to bring, to, to forge an attachment to him. And, and there's a, a two-part answer to that. And, uh, and that is yes and no. You know, that we, we all know that we, we've heard of the movie The Exorcist, which uh, this year, it's, uh, it's the 50th year anniversary of, of, of that movie. And the story was based on a true story of, of, a, of a young boy who became possessed. And, and that happened because his aunt, who was working as his babysitter, came in and brought a Ouija board. And, and as, at a young age, uh, he was just a young adolescent, was invited to play with it. And so that was the cause of his possession. Now that kid certainly didn't know what he was getting into, but in a sense, in one sense, it doesn't matter. You're opening a spiritual portal and whatever is on the other side of that door, well, that's, that's what you bargained for, right? It's just like analogously in, 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 in physical reality, you know, someone knocks on your front door and you decide to open the door without looking. And on the other side of the door could be somebody bringing you a newspaper. It could be somebody, could be the mailman saying, hey, I got a parcel for you. Or it could be somebody there with a knife who wants to put that knife through you multiple times. And you're gonna get what you're gonna get. Because as soon as you open that door, you're subject to what's on the other side. And it is no different in the spiritual life. Now, that being said, the hold the demon has on somebody is going to be proportionate to the consent that somebody gives with regard to a sinful action, a sinful choice, with regard to uh, the, the kind of action uh, that led to the relationship with the devil. So in, in that little kid, uh, in, in the movie, the actually in the story, The Exorcism, uh, he didn't choose the devil, he didn't choose to sin, and, and it would be debatable whether he even incurred sin at his young age while he was playing the Ouija board. Now, so in one sense, with regard to his possession, it doesn't matter. With regard to him being in a state of possession, with regard to the demon staying inside him, though, it does matter a great deal. Because although there, there, there needed to be some act of repentance, there was no explicit relationship with the devil formed. Mm -hmm. That would be different than, say, if you or I got out the Ouija board and started to play with it. The hold in us would be much deeper. We would be subject to a much stronger demonic hold simply because the, there's, there's a, a deeper covenant there. there. There's more of a surface area uh, to which the devil can forge himself. I like this line from an interview done by Father Martins before, and I quote, the hold the demon has on somebody is going to be proportionate to the consent that somebody gives with regard to a sinful action, a sinful choice with regard to the kind of action that led to the relationship with the devil. And there's one thing that I kept hearing from these exorcists, where they keep on sharing cases of people who are born into families who worship the devil. But no matter how many times I've heard this kind of cases before, it still boggles the mind how one is willing to consecrate themselves to the devil and even worse is bringing their entire family and worshiping the evil one. I've seen cases, been involved with cases with people who were born into satanic sects, or in some cases, Wiccan sects, whereby they were consecrated to evil from the time they were infants. Some of them were consecrated from the time they were in the womb. So the very parents are handing the child over to the devil. So at this point, the child has no will to speak of, uh, just like when we present a baby for baptism, an infant, a newborn, he has no will to speak of. His will is unformed. So uh, he can't, he or she can't give consent to anything. But the parents give the consent on his or her behalf. And the parents present the child for baptism to the church, child receives the baptism. And so 
with the, the commitment of the parents, the child receives the benefit. And the reverse can also be the case. If, if for some sick reason, heinous reason, parents decide to give a child over to evil, then the universe being constructed the way it is by the Lord, he's created a moral universe with moral consequences to actions. Uh, not just Those moral consequences don't just apply to us, but they apply to others, uh, especially those who are in our care, then the devil can pounce on that. And, and so that certainly does happen. And, and certainly one can become possessed in that regard. Um, I, I dealt with one case uh, that was quite visceral uh, where where this she was now a grown woman, but she had been uh, consecrated to evil from the time she was young, and there were multiple ceremonies that took place, and then she was formed in a way that would be absolutely antithetical to the way of life that you and I know, and that, and that you and I were raised in the in the in the Judeo Christian view. Uh, she she was uh, formed to be uh, in this in this group that was constantly rebellious towards God, towards the Lord. Uh, now, when she became aware in her adult life that, wait a minute, there's something innately unhealthy about this and I want out, um, then that was the first movement of her liberation because now she was taking ownership. She had recognized what was going on in her, recognized it as not good, even though she had no formation in in, in proper faith and proper religion. She had been raised to fear God, just like we fear the devil. But she had come to recognize what I've been taught is wrong. And so that not only was a great grace, uh, but it was also an act of that demanded great courage because she now had to break away from that sect. Uh, and if, if she were to be caught, they would have killed her. Um, but she was possessed because of everything done to her. Um, she was possessed viscerally. Uh, but what I find is, uh, as, as the exorcisms took place and went on, uh, there was a tremendous amount of grace that Christ gave in this situation because, precisely because she had not chosen the devil. Her, her, her will was not personally engaged. And the fact that it was personally disengaged from the devil uh, meant that uh, the, the liberation, which took a long time to, to come about, it, it wasn't easy, but it, 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 was, it was easier than in terms of, of others who had expl explicitly cooperated with the devil um, through doing, say, a much lesser act than what her parents did to her. And there's an interesting story shared by another exorcist, Father John Farrow, about a witch doctor. I had a case not too long, showed up my doorstep. Actually, the kid called. Early teens, trying to make their first communion late in life. And he says, well, you know, I go to prayer sessions at different houses and I, I like fall down, I like fall asleep. We kind of understand that the Catholic world likes laying in the spirit. There's where the spirit... The Holy Spirit can so overwhelm you that you just feel at peace and you just really just faint. The interesting thing with this person was um, they never felt peaceful, though. Their sense of it, sense of being in God's presence is very peaceful, very good. You got nothing to be afraid of. So I said, oh, come on over, bring your mom, let's talk. So they come over. Mom's trying to tell me, well, he's really holy kid. That's why, you know, he has these mystical experiences. So we talk a little bit, and I don't get three lines into the Our Father, and the kid goes, on the couch. Not, not good. So after a few minutes, he wakes up, but now he's, like, paralyzed from his waist down. He can't walk. So we have to pick him up, put him in a car. Mom takes him to the emergency room, gets him all checked out. They can't find anything. A few hours later... His, he's able to walk. So then a week later, he calls me, wants me to see me again. So mom comes and she's talking to me. And then she says, yeah, you know, there seems to be a lot of strife in the family. It's a big family. I want to say there's like six, seven, eight kids. And this one's the youngest. And, you know, whenever my dad comes to visit, it seems to get worse. Again, I'm not into one or two lines in the Our Father. We got serious stuff here. 
So a few weeks later, grandpa's there, mom's there, and the kid's there. I never quite understood why grandpa came along on this. So we're talking about stuff and about the kid and everything. And grandpa says, I'm powerful. And then all of a sudden, he just comes to me and I go, you're a corandero, Hispanic for witch doctor. You serve the evil one. He gets really quiet. And I go, what you do is doing this to her. Doesn't back up, doesn't say no, doesn't. And I look at her and I say, he's made some promises to his family line. And she's about to make her first communion. And he doesn't like it. So every time she goes to a prayer thing, they didn't, they didn't come back. Because I'm pretty sure the daughter wasn't going to tell her dad, don't come, don't be doing this stuff that affects our family. Because she even admitted when he came to visit, the tension and the other dynamic in the house went nuts with her older kids. It is important to emphasize that the temptation that comes from the devil presents a psychology, a way of happening with stages and progressions. If the person does not present the natural law well-developed and does not count on the help of divine grace, it falls very easily into the insidious of the evil one, and often the stages of temptation do not occur for the evil one does not need much effort and invested to induce it to error. For virtuous individuals, the devil follows a whole cautious and meticulous procedure. According to Father Antonio Royal Marin, who was a Spanish-Dominican priest and theologian, the first stage is the approach of the devil. The second is the demon's attack. It is important to say that the devil is a great observer and uses the information gained through observation to consummate temptation. Although they do not have direct access to men's thoughts, diabolical beings analyze people's daily lives and attitudes and then attack them in their weaknesses. Having information about the individual's life, the demon insinuates the person to begin the dialogue in his mind about the idea presented to him. The third step corresponds to the person's response to the suggestion received. The devil wants to establish a conversation with the person and aims to make someone show doubts about their moral convictions. The fourth phase, the proposal of sin, always comes followed by a lie, a fallacy related to spiritual life, the character of God, and the happiness that comes from virtuous life. That is, the devil presents a false proposal of happiness. The fifth stage, the wavering, is a venial sin, because the person already sees himself committing sin and contemplates this hypothesis, tasting it mentally. Next comes consent, that is the consummation of the sinful act. And finally, the stage of repentance, which is not at all evil, reveals to the sinful man that he is broken with his vocation to holiness and effective union with God, reinforcing the immediate need for contrition and forgiveness. And Father John Farrow explains it this way. They're much more involved in our world than we realize. Padre Pio would say that if you could see angels, they... The sky is just filled with them. Okay. So they're all around us. So they watch us real well. They can't read our thoughts, but they read us. And the kids have figured out pretty fast how to read that. Well, demons or fallen angels, they can see how much your eye dilates. They can see how you breathe, how you flush whether a person walks by and you notice them, whether or not your eyes dilate because you find them attractive. They can tell by how you listen. Hmm, can I hook them on this? Okay, so they read our externals. They can't read our minds, but they read us so they know what interests you. He's a master at figuring out what each person's desert of choices. And it's fair to say the devil has time on his side to get to us. But our society is going very quickly that way because they've lost its anchor to God. And right. evil's just having a heyday with people then because he can slowly move people to do something. They have an interesting saying in Italian. We don't have the translation in English, really. In Italian, they will say, you know, once you start slicing the salami, after a while, the whole salami is gone. Satan has a whole lifetime to get you. He can slice you as thin as tissue paper. Start when you're younger, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then slowly over time, morals and ethics are gone. doesn't matter. And now we're on a really slippery slope down the rest of the way.
We've all heard of demonic possession before from various exorcists, and I've shared it almost all the time of the exorcist talking about this as well. But I haven't shared what Father Joseph Iannuzzi said about being possessed by God like Mary did. And so I hope you'll learn something about this that will help you to grow spiritually. I wish to pause here and emphasize the manner in which God possessed Mary. It was not until Mary gave not only her being, but her will that God possessed her entire being. And this is how we allow God to possess us. Just like Pope John Paul II in the moniker adopted by St. Louis de Montfort proclaimed, Mary, I am all yours and everything I have is yours. So we are to give our whole being to God in the same way. And our will especially. We can give everything external, our bodies, our possessions, our income, our children, everything. But if we don't give him our will, we are still lacking. And if we do that, then God takes possession of us, her life, and her future. Once she would give her yes to the angel Gabriel, or to God through the angel Gabriel, her life would be radically changed. And this change would continue to happen again and again and again, due to persecutions like Herod seeking to kill the child, which caused her over in a night's notice to flee her homeland, pack and leave and go and stay in a foreign country for about eight years or so. And then when the death of Herod occurred, come back and then relocate only to have her son scourged, humiliated, crucified. So you see, Mary's sacrifice and triumph in the sacrifice was unending. But it is in the triumph of the sacrifice that the divine will took possession of her. And that possession continued to increase in intensity with each new triumph in the sacrifice. I hope that was helpful to you and for me personally. I never really looked at it that way before, and that's why I decided to share that particular clip of Father Yanuzzi talking about it here in this video. Possession is something God wants to realize within us, but it cannot take place unless we give our entire being and especially our will to him. And how do we do it? By giving our will first and foremost over to Mary, the mediatrix of all grace. Every single grace that has ever come into the world and beyond, even in the angelic realms, has come through Mary. Mary's humanity, like that of Christ, engenders timeless merit. She was preserved from the stain of sin. And as the mother of God was given the role that brought with it singular graces, whereby she is extolled as the mother of all the living in the new order of grace after Eve fell in her role. And this grace of Mary, singular grace of motherhood, extends throughout the centuries. Her motherhood, in its effect, engenders graces into the past, present, and future concomitantly. The same dynamism occurred in Christ. And that is why, even though Christ is the firstborn of all creation, as Paul says, he's born of Mary. He's the firstborn in the order of grace. He co-created with the Father and the Spirit, the Blessed Mother. So he preceded her as a divine person, but his humanity, his human nature, came from her. She engendered that. Whereby he, the firstborn of all creation, and she, the mother of all the living in the new order of grace, exercise dominion and engender grace to all those who are willing to receive it, even to those who are not. And those who squander the grace provided by God through Mary to all will not enjoy the benefit of it, and those graces squandered do not get lost. Souls, Jesus reveals, that live in his will receive all the graces squandered by those who refuse them. Some of you requested that I share something from Father Ripperger in the comments recently, so I'll share something from Father Ripperger about this one particular demon. Did you know there's a demon known as demons of the air? And basically what they are, these demons of the air are the demons that can get into the air through various sins that people commit 
and they can influence things within our home. Remember how many, it's like in the 20s, there's like 20 references to demons of the air throughout the totality of scripture in various locations. I might be wrong in that statistic, but there's definitely rec uh, references to that. And so the, the candle, as it's blessed in the old rite, is actually asks, and prayer begets what it signifies. So what you ask for is what you get. So when you pray this in relationship with the candle, and uh, the priest does, and it receives that blessing, it's actually you're asking to drive the demons out of the area by the light of the candle. Mm -hmm. Did you know that the church is always referred to on earth as the church militant, but it appears for people to understand spiritual combat, spiritual warfare, and so forth, it's intimidating for a lot of people. Why do you think we are in this place now where we don't even hear this conversation about spiritual combat, spiritual warfare very much at all? And yet there are so many people who are clearly starving for this ultimately because it's written on our hearts that we are to engage in this spiritual battle. I think you'll find the answer to this question rather interesting as it is all down to one of the fruits of modernism. I almost hate to use this word because, quote a movie, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, but I think it's one of the fruits of modernism. Mm. Um, and, and in modernism, basically when it comes to the scriptures, you treat it as a type of mythology, um, that it's all symbols, it's not real per se. And what has happened in that time span, not just in the Catholic Church, but in most churches as well, is we have turned Jesus into a nice guy and the devil into a, a, a mythical typology. Right. And that he's not real. And I can't remember who said it, and I wish I could. I keep terminating to C.S. Lewis, and that's wrong, that the greatest hoax the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. Let's just remember this. One of the things that history shows us is that the devil always overplays his hand. He plays really subtle, and he plays with masks. He plays behind the scenes for a long time, but he hates being behind the scenes because he's a proud spirit. He likes to be upfront because likes to receive the worship and the adoration. And so eventually, he overplays his hand and he comes out in the open and pushes things too far. If you take Hitler as an example, Hitler, when he first came to power, the Nazis first came to power, were very subtle in their approach. They were bringing in things. People said, Hitler's great. We have full employment. Um, you know, the economy's doing well. Uh, He's in favor of uh, good families, good marriages. He's supporting all of these things that we really like. A lot of conservative people were in favor of what he was doing. Um, and then, of course, the mask came down and every people, be, people began to see what he was really like and what he really stood for. And that's when the people who were believers were able to roll up their sleeves and say, right, we have to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good lesson from history, that the devil overplays his hand. And very often, if the people of faith... Um, just bide their time, he will eventually show his true colors. Um, and, and that's when people of goodwill and, and faith will rise up and, and uh, stand for what's true and what's good. One of my favorites that was said by Father Martins during an interview is when he described what happened to the victim at the moment of a liberation. According to him, the liberated victim would sometimes see the blessed mother, sometimes they see a saint or even Jesus, but there were also times when they don't see anything. But what the exorcist will most definitely see is an immediate difference in the eyes of the liberated victims. They will see the person and according to Father Martins, that's the best way he can describe it. Throughout an exorcism, the exorcists are looking into the eyes of the victim. They're looking at something that is inhabiting the possessed victim, that has a definite personality, and when that personality leaves, it's unmistakable. They can see that the eyes are the window into the soul, and at the point of liberation, they are seeing the individual now. They're seeing the person. Oftentimes what Father Martins would see is that there's a brightness coming from the person, almost like a glow coming from their flesh, that the light of Jesus is now in them and it hasn't been in them for a long time. You know, if you don't believe in God, if he's not a reality for you, ask him to make him that reality. Because if he does exist, he is quite capable of making himself known to you. So uh, stop, stop searching for evidence of him ask him or I mean you don't have to stop searching for evidence but 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 more than that make a dialogue with him your focus because that is what is going to be much more effective at giving you what you desire and what you were created to have father martin's also cleared up some confusions about exorcism most people think that exorcism is a kind of one time one shot thing but the reality is it's not 
According to him, most possession cases require on average 75 exorcisms, and they require an exorcism done once a week for about a year and a half. But there will be some that are much longer than that while some are relatively quick. For the ones that last a while that last a long time, those are the ones that typically have multiple possessing spirits, and the initial ones are always the lowest on the totem pole. They're the lowest because that's how the main demons, and especially the main possessor, saves his energy and protects himself from being cast out. The other way that one knows is just the sheer strength of that demon relative to the others. Let's listen to Father Martins himself then. Uh, and typically, when you have a main possessor, it isn't even the fact that uh, the initial demon uh, is, is who the main possessor is but there's an exchange of rights in the demonic kingdom. So maybe it may have been a lower level demon that obtains access to the person. Those rights are given to a, a, a big guy. And that big guy, just his sheer power, his resistance, um, his character and nature is much more difficult to deal with than a lower level one. Often, often, they will be mute spirits, like you hear about in the scriptures, where they don't talk. Nothing I can compel them uh, to, will, will, nothing I can level at them will make them talk, because in their nature, they're not speakers. Uh, just like in their nature, most demons I encounter, uh, when the possession happens, their eyes roll into the back of their head. So for the next two hours, three hours, four hours, the entire time of, of the exorcism, I just have two white eyes, with no pupils at all, staring at me. And yet, the individual will know exactly what is in the room. And with an uncanny accuracy, the demon can reach out if his arm is free and grab somebody by the throat and start, and start squeezing. After listening to a lot of these exorcists, here's one thing I can share with you, and that is, the exorcists cannot perform an exorcism on somebody against their will because as humans, we have free will. Someone can make the choice for Jesus, or they can make the choice against Jesus. What we can do instead on our part, we can certainly pray for that person, praying that they come to a better understanding of why it's important to have a relationship with Jesus. That's why it's important to remember that if there's no willingness for the demon to be gone, then it cannot be cast out. I talked with an elderly man one time at the request of his family because uh, they said he has no faith. And we're concerned that when he dies, what will happen to his soul? And as I was talking with him, the man told me that he had befriended demons throughout his life. But when he died, he had no desire to be with God. He actually wanted to spend eternity, he told me, with the devil and the demons that he had befriended in this life. Now, I hear that and I think, wow, that's crazy talk. But again, that's the choice that he's making with his own free will. Certainly, I would pray for him that he would have a change of heart and a conversion and welcome Christ into his life. But again, you think of scripture, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't kick the door in and say, here I am to save the day. We have to invite him in. He desires that we have that relationship with him, but we have to, to want it. He doesn't force it upon us. I'm sure some of you have heard of people that have dreams about demons. I've even made a few videos covering about this very subject before, what the exorcist monstigner Stephen Rossetti said about it. Well, I guess it's a good idea to hear what Father Lampert has to say about it as well. You know, for one to have a dream about a demon, I guess I would ask the question, what's, what's going on in their life? You know, is there some internal struggle? Mm -hmm. Is there some type of faith crisis? Because again, if demons are trying to intrude into one's dreams, then there has to be something else going on in their life. But again, trying to understand that and balancing it with one's relationship with God is so important. But again, I would say the person identifies himself as a Christian. So the devil obviously believes that this occurrence is going to rattle the person somewhat. And again, use it against him. Don't be rattled by this experience, but use this experience to draw even closer to God. I was going to say the devil plays on a person's memory and imagination. So there's something going on, I would say, in the person's life that the devil believes is a weak link in the mm. chink of their spiritual armor. So he's trying to get a foothold in the person's life. I would say that a lot of people that I've talked to that have had sleep paralysis have that sense of the presence of some demonic entity. Now, I think in the 
the medical world, they may come up with different explanations, but I've had people that would say sleep paralysis came about, you know, maybe they kind of woke up, there was a presence of a demon in their room and they were just paralyzed. There was no way that they could even move. And there was a sense of just being really, really terrified. You know, when people experience that, the best thing to do is to pray. You call upon the Holy Spirit because wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. So I always tell people, if, if somehow you believe there's some type of demonic presence around you, just invoke the Holy Spirit. And you know, if a person really hasn't done anything wrong to bring about a presence of evil, then God just may be permitting it to happen as an opportunity for the person to show their fidelity to God. And I call that demonic oppression. Oppression is a gift from God. That might sound kind of strange, that God would allow us to be afflicted by evil. But again, God can permit that as an opportunity for us to show our fidelity to God. Because it's easy to be a person of faith if everything is going along great. But, you know, if we're going through pain and suffering, you know, then perhaps there might be the temptation to abandon our relationship with God. We were talking earlier about suffering, you know, and sleep paralysis can be a form of suffering. I was thinking of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the dark valley, I fear no evil, for you are at my side with your rod and your staff that give me courage. I think any time that we feel like we're being afflicted by evil, we haven't done anything to bring that on. We just have to remember that Christ is with us. He's at our side during this time of darkness. And if we call upon him, then he'll come and evil will flee. I would also like to share something from Father Dan Rehill, where he talks about the devil not being worried about being seen anymore because he realizes that his reign is coming to a close and he's using everything he has now to try to drag as many people down with him so we can be miserable in hell too. A Christian, any Christian, and you follow the scriptures, we know there was a war in heaven and Lucifer, the most brilliant and the most beautiful of the angels, rebelled because of the plan for the Son, the Word, to become flesh. And he was horrified that God would lower himself to our nature. And so he said, I will not serve. And he was cast out with his minions, and they became the fallen angels, the demons, and they were cast down to earth. And so this is not um, mythical. This is fact. The devil is a real person, a person in the sense of having a will and an intellect. Um, he's a spirit, but he's a person. And what you said is true, that he used to be very hidden, and he used to be very subtle. And it should worry people that he's suddenly not worried about being seen. Hmm. Because that means it's what most people would deduct from that is that he realizes that his reign is coming to a close and he's using everything he has now to try to drag as many people down with him so we can be miserable in hell too. For those of you who are still here with us, thank you so much for your time, for taking the time to watch this video, and hopefully you've learned a lot from what we've put together for you that could be useful for your own spiritual growth, for your own spiritual warfare. And so for the last part of this video, I'd like to share something from Father Yanuzi, Father Sada, and Monsignor Rossetti. Firstly, a prayer that Christians often overlook, even Catholics. One of the prayers that Christians, including Catholics, fail to do, and that is perhaps the most important, is the prayer of praise. We oftentimes intercede. We ask for petitions. Uh, be heard. But very few of us take time to praise God, thank God, bless God. And yet this was perhaps the most common prayer Louisa made throughout her life, especially in the rounds. It is good for us to intercede on behalf of people's needs. We have to do that. But we also have to praise God and give over to God things that are out of our control. Trust God. Secondly, the speak box. I had this happen once before. Of a, of a woman who had a, a younger brother who had died and she was distraught and she got a speak box to find out if he was okay and she had this conversation he was doing fine she should be okay blah 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 now she began to experience all kind of manifestations in her house and i told her i said you were not talking to your brother you were talking to a demon who was pretending to be your brother to get your trust to get your confidence to get you to put your you know trust in, in him
and she opened the door to hell. That's exactly what happened, right? Um, so, you know, and then, so I have this case. It's an ongoing case. This woman got to speak box, and, you know, she supposedly was talking to her dead husband. Um, so I told the priest how he should handle it, what he should do. I'm still waiting for him to get back to me, and we need to follow through on that particular case. But this is what happens. I had another case some years ago down in York. Um, a man was actually hearing a voice in his home. And um, we couldn't figure out what it was. I went down a number of times. We did different prayers, deliverance, minor exorcisms. Could not figure out um, what was going on. And one day I was leaving. I was at the door. And I myself heard the voice. I turned around to him and I said, Tim, I heard her. I know what you're talking about. I heard her myself. I said, now what we have to determine is, is this a demon or is this a lost soul asking for help? Once we figure out which is which, we'll know how to proceed with the situation. What did poor Tim do? Well, desperate to be freed, he called in the paranormal investigating team. And they set up their cameras and their microphones and all that kind of stuff. And literally all hell broke loose in that house. And he called me and said, Father, it's horrible. You don't know what's going on here. I said, Tim, why did you do that? You just issued an open invitation to hell to come on in. And they did. And so then they called me in to clean up the mess, you know. And that happens more often than you might believe, all right. So now you're dealing with two things. I, I, they kind of overlap. We have these oppressions where people are being attacked, but then you also have what we call infestations. Uh, that man from Indonesia who saw this figure in his home. Um, infestations can be where a particular place appears to be quote-unquote haunted, all right? Uh, and there's something to that. There is something to the stories of ghosts. Um, but it, it, that's an interesting kind of thing, too. If you actually stop and think about it, it's very fascinating. You think of any classic ghost story that you've ever heard. It always involves a spirit that is attached to a particular place that doesn't really communicate other than to say that they're there because something has to be done to make up for something that they did or did not do that they can no longer do, and they need somebody else to do it for them. And only once that's done, then they can be free to go on to the light, as they sometimes say. If you stop and think about that, that's a classic definition of purgatory. You know, a soul stuck because of something not done or something they did that has to be reparation for, all right? Somebody else has to help them to get free so that they can move on. The definition of purgatory, so it's not unusual. Those kinds of ghost stories happen all the time. You know, it's pretty normal. So a lot of times, I just, I had one recently too, very fascinating. And I, I bring this one up only because of the fact that it was on the news. So it's not secret or, or confidential. Thirdly, the St. Benedict Medal. The exact time and date of the making of the first St. Benedict Medals are not clear. The medal was originally a cross dedicated to the devotion and honor of St. Benedict. At some, time, at some point, medals were struck that bore the image of St. Benedict holding a cross aloft in his right hand and his rule for monasteries in the other hand. Then a sequence of capital letters were placed around the large figure of the cross moat line and the reverse side of the medal. The meaning of what the letters signified was lost over time until around 1647, an old manuscript was discovered, um, and in that manuscript, written in 1415, was a picture depicting St. Benedict holding a staff and the scroll, and on the staff and scroll were written in full the words of which the mysterious letters were the, the initials. The Latin prayer of exorcism against Satan, that's what those initials actually are, okay? The manuscript contains the exorcism formula vade retro satana, step back Satan, and the letters were found to correspond to this phrase. The exorcism prayer is found in an early 13th century legend of the Devil's Bridge, and um, this is interesting. An architect sold his soul to the devil and then subsequently repented, 
the curé of sins, wearing his stole, exercised the devil, driving him away with holy water and those words which, made, uh, which he made the penitent um, repeat. So this is, this is where it is. It's something else I didn't know about, but I thought it was rather interesting. Um, uh, the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul wear the St. Benedict Medal as part of their habit, which I, I didn't know that until I actually looked this up. I thought that was very interesting. So anyway, all of those um, letters are initials for actual or right of exorcism. And so that's, it's considered to be a, um, a protection against demonic influence. And so this is one of the reasons why the metal itself has to be exorcised. You know, not just blessed, it has to be exorcised. It's really funny, sometimes up there, the boys at the academy will come in and they'll say, Father, will you bless my metal for me? And I'll say no, and they just look at me. Why, why not? Well, because, you know, it's not just a simple blessing. It's going to take me, you know, five prayers to do this. <laughs> um, so I'll do it, and then you can pick it up tomorrow, you know. Um, so, yeah, but that's what it is. It's, it is a prayer of exorcism. Um, the medal itself is exorcised, and so it's a protection against Satan. Okay? And finally, from Monsignor Rossetti, I always love listening to this priest, and even so for talking about angels. A recent poll showed that 69% of Americans believe in angels. I do too. Uh, and also, 20% of Americans say they've had some personal encounter with an angel or a demon. So, uh, the reality of angels is much more uh, prevalent than perhaps people would realize. People do believe in angels. And the church teaches that each of us has a personal angel assigned to us, a guardian angel that the Lord has sent to to be with us, to guide us on our journey, and as a sign of his God's personal love for us. Speaking to many people about angels, uh, I've heard uh, wonderful stories about angels. Uh, one, for example, a priest told me that he and a couple of other priests were about to go down this dark alley, and he felt this, this uh, inspiration not to do that. And he, and he said, but they ignored it and, and went down there anyway. And he was surrounded by, uh, sadly, by, by some people who were, were, were threatening them. Uh, but fortunately, a car came by, honked its horn, and, and they ran away. He said, you know, my guardian angel was warning me, and, and I should have listened. Another story, this is very interesting, a, a woman I know who... Uh, has a charism of actually seeing angels. And there, there are some people who do. And she said one day she was going to a retreat center at night and it was very dark. She was lost. She had no idea she, where she was going. She was frightened. She said so she prayed to her guardian angel who showed up. Uh, he said, trust, tr trust. He said, flew in front of the car. And, and, and she just blindly followed the, the angel uh, winding down the, the curves, and, the, and, and uh, an hour later she arrived at her destination. So, a, a wonderful symbol that uh, the angels are indeed leading us if our, in our lives, if only we would listen. But also, in a demonic inversion, there are these familiar or guiding spirits that people in the occult uh, believe they have and use, which many times, sadly, can be demons. Uh, and there have been many stories of that. Uh, and we're very careful about that. We uh, recently had a, a woman who was uh, suffering from demonic afflictions, and she had this vision of, of an angel, said it was an angel. And, but the angel said some things she did, uh, didn't sound right. So she said, does Jesus love me? And this spirit said, snarl, no, Jesus hates you. And then she knew it wasn't, or a guardian angel, but it was a demon. And so we tell all of our people to be very careful uh, when you have these visions. Put the spirits to the test, as the Bible says, and make sure they come from the God. Make sure it's really your guardian angel and not an evil spirit. Uh, but know that God is with us and that guardian angel is guiding us. It's a deliverance prayer invoking the angels to help us. And we know that the angels are indeed with us in, in every deliverance prayer. It's called a prayer to the holy angels. Heavenly Father, the holy angels swiftly carry out your every wish 
and command. I ask you now to send the holy angels to us and to this place. May they surround the evil spirits and with the sword of Christ, protect and defend us, we who belong to you. May St. Michael with the legion of heavenly powers come now to our aid and once again cast out Satan and his minions, both human and demonic. We thank you for the powerful ministry of these beautiful spirits. With them, may we praise you forever. Amen. And God bless you. And may your guardian spirits guide you safely home. Well then, thank you so very much for taking the time to watch the video. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here with us. And I can't thank you enough, but deliver more useful videos like this. I'm doing this full time and I love learning from these priests, listening to them almost every day and trying to identify important points from each lecture, each interview. For those of you who'd like to support our works, I left a link to our PayPal donation down in the description box below. Thank you so much in advance for your support and contribution. Well then, until the next one, stay safe, stay healthy, and God bless you. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I don't believe in purgatory, but I just posted this episode because um just thought that it would be helpful. But uh, I'm not a Catholic. I'm a Christian. And um, definitely don't communicate with the dead in any type of way. And um, don't believe that The dead are like allowed to communicate to us to get out of purgatory because I don't believe in purgatory. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting, so that's why I posted this episode. This is the host of the Redesign of Destiny uh, podcast, and um, I chime in every now and then, you know, with my beliefs or whatever, but teach their own.